Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 68 of Freight 360. Ben, we got a special one today. We're, we're, we're honored to be guested by Mr. Ken Adamo of DAT, the Chief of Analytics. So, gentlemen, good morning. Glad to have you both morning. Uh, all here morning, today. Nate. So, um, well, hey, so t- today's big rundown here, we're going we're gonna to discuss 2020 in a nutshell. It's been a dumpster fire of a year, as everybody knows. We did, had no idea what was coming at us. We all planned for what we thought was going to be a certain year, and it wasn't. So we're going to hit on that. Uh, but first, Ken, I, I wanted to, to give a brief little introduction to you here. So you've been with DAT for about a year or so, and you've been in logistics for close to a decade as really a numbers guy. If I were to just kind of put it simply, um, you must have a, a very big passion for numbers and decimal points and percentages and all kinds of trends and all that good uh, analytics stuff. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you do at DAT now and um, how, kind of how you got into this this part of the business. Yeah, so I I came to DAT from being a customer, so it's been a really unique perspective. I I used DAT to build pricing models and forecasting models when I was in the industry. Um, but my current set of responsibilities, I have responsibility for data science, so product development through the data science lens. I have data analytics and industry analysis. So um, all of it keeps me busy, but it's something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and it's been a really great year um, seeing the industry sort of from the other side, um, other side of the equation. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's funny is Ben and I, you know, we've been doing this for quite a while. We often use your data or DAT's data in general when it comes to presenting information and kind of giving our thoughts and stuff. So really awesome to have you on. Ben, would you, uh, would you agree with me that we're, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like having the, the keys to success when it comes to data right in our house right now. So. Oh, it's great. I, I'm, I'm excited for the episode. Ken and I have had a couple conversations a while back, and I'm, I'm really excited to dig into this topic, get his insights. I've got a lot of questions. I know you do as well. It's going to be it's going to be a good time. Fellow Yinzer. Fellow Yinzer, exactly. Wow. Right. So, hey, if we're going to kick this off, I mean, Nate at least has the upper hand in the... Well, I'm, I'm an original Pittsburgh-born Steelers took an L, the second loss of the season to Nate's Bills. But, you know, I at least have some, you know, a little uh, brethren over here with Ken, fellow Yinzer. Let, let me ask you guys this, because I didn't know about the Yins thing until I went to college and uh, a, a guy I went to school with, he was from Pittsburgh and where everything's apparently like a township and... He's like, he would say yins instead of like y'all or you guys. And I'm like, what, where does that even come from? But obviously that's where the yinzer part is, but what yins, I don't, I don't understand what, what's the backing or I guess what's the history on yins or is it just unknown? I don't honestly, I don't know the origin, the origin. I say yins, say it. Maybe somewhere around Myron Cope probably also had some. Oh, I bet you it's before that. Um, I made the mistake. I was on the phone with my mom for half an hour on the drive into the studio this morning, and I was afraid that was going to really mess me up for the podcast. I mean, she's a hardcore yinzer. She uses it. I think like you're a hardcore yinzer when you're using yins for singular instead of just plural, right? Like, I told yins. <laughs> there's I told yins, great, guys. Oh, and there's some great. There's some great ones like gum band, sweeper, spigot. 
like there's jumbo Pits- for baloney jumbo i mean there's definitely some pittsburghese in there um i have you mentioned the townships it's like no uh, idea what you guys just said at all there uh, <laughs> there's a there's a little township like you know plum borough and it's one word if you're a yinzer it's plum borough yeah you know plum it's borough. down there it doesn't matter where it is it's down there down, down there downtown okay fair enough um Moving on to uh, back to, <laughs> I guess, back to sports to, you know, I, I've very, very rare do I have two Yenzers um, coming at me w- with P- Pittsburgh Steelers talk, but 11 and two, yeah, you guys got what the Bengals this weekend, whatever. Uh, Bill's got Denver on Saturday. So should be interesting. I think, uh, I think you're going to see a good AFC push the last few weeks of the season here. And I think Pittsburgh is going to come off of its losing streak and um, you know, bounce back. I think, I think you might see a, a 14 and two season for Pittsburgh. Um, what do you guys think? I, just, I, mean, I hate to say it. I'm worried about the Browns. Yeah, it is. I don't know. Baker Mayfield. Is he, is he underrated, overrated or accurately rated? I don't know. We'll see. I wouldn't be too worried about it. I, I think I'd be comfortable playing as a bills fan. I'd be comfortable playing them in the postseason. So I don't know what you, you guys got on. Knowing the Browns, they'd go to like the wrong stadium or something and have to forfeit <laughs> the game. I mean, they're, they have, I mean, on paper, right? One of the best rosters in the NFL. And um, <laughs> they always find some way to, I mean, that's the best game the Steelers have played all year was against the Browns. It's the only only yep. game they looked like an 11-2 team, truth. Yes, agreed. I mean, they were the, a lot of their a lot of their schedule early on in the season was to losing record teams. So you kind of, so as that plays out throughout the season, you kind of see what your strength of schedule really looked like. So, yeah. And it's going to be hard felt- to beat the Chiefs. That's always been the Steelers Achilles heel throughout my lifetime is losing the games they should have won. You know, even in their really good years, you know, when they would take losses, they would play down to their opponents. Win the games that they maybe shouldn't have won, lose the ones that they definitely should have. That's like the story of any NFL team that's not the best and struggling to become, you know, one of the upper echelon teams. Losing the games that you should clearly win and then you somehow beat the uh beat the undefeated team or you know the top guys interesting but good stuff around elsewhere around sports i don't really know we're basketball's kind of back in action uh i don't follow soccer but i think that they're i I flip through espn channels and there's always a different game on in europe so the i guess the whole point here with uh you know 2020 today's topic being lessons learned and you know what the heck happened with covid and what have we learned is it's been a it's been a wild year for everybody, you know, the sports world included. And there's been a lot of adversity, but people have been extremely flexible and resilient when it comes to bouncing back from the challenges thrown at them. So um, you look at businesses that had to you know engineer new ways to put, you know, divide seating and put up walls and, you know, provide cleaning um, stations and stuff like that. And you've got sports that were able to do bubbles and. Um, you've got, you know, gyms that were spacing out treadmills. I mean, there, there's all kinds of ways that people have been able to overcome the challenges of 2020. So let's talk freight when it comes to, to 2020 and the year of COVID. Um, if you guys could sum it up in just a couple brief words, um, I'm curious how you each would label 2020 when it comes to, to the freight world. I'm going with dumpster fire, but I'll let you guys pick your, Mine's your the peaks on the valley. spot here. This is not planned. 
Yeah, mine's mine's the peaks and valleys. I I think, you know, normally what you see a couple times that are predictable through the freight market, you know, on an annual basis this year was the exact opposite, obviously completely unpredictable, but that created a lot of opportunities for brokers. And it's definitely created a very good year for carriers. So I think it has been a really good year overall, kind of when you look at it for logistics. And I think the really other big takeaway, I was doing a show last night with some of the other folks was, you know, this is one of the first years where I think logistics has been kind of in the limelight. You know what I mean? Usually it's a second thought and afterthought. It's pretty cool to be able to see the people out there that really move the economy, right? Like the men and women that are actually moving the products that we all use on a day-to-day basis. And we kind of take those individuals for granted. I think it's pretty cool to be able to see them and for them to be kind of getting their shot in the, you know, 15 minutes of fame or whatnot. That's good. Yeah, I would go peaks and valleys. I mean, it's been we we've been prosperous. It feels like for so many months. It's hard to it's hard to remember that early May, you know, truck drivers were protesting in front of the White House um, because rates were sub dollar twenty five a mile nationally, right? So um, it's been peaks and valleys, feast and famine, all year, and um, you know that volatility I think takes a toll on the market. Did you guys both say peaks and valleys? I mean, I'm, I'm almost starting to think that yins are just twins over here. <laughs> but no, you make a good point. So the, the ebb and flow throughout the year, the, um, like you said, no one, you think back to the springtime when people were protesting the rates in DC and, you know, driving by the White House and honking their horn. And um, people, so much happened, has happened throughout this year that people do forget a lot of the big things along the way. So, um, you know, think about when, trucking companies started to go out of business because they couldn't stay afloat and then businesses start to open back up then there's a crunch on capacity so the it's just the the nuances that we've really just never seen all happen at once have all kind of come together this year so um let's get into it beginning of 2020 uh ken you're the analytics guru what did you have COVID or the pandemic even on your radar kind of looking at the international spectrum or what did we see or forecast going into 2020 before this all kind of shut down. So, I mean, 2020 was supposed to be a good year for rates. Um, coming off of 19, that we all know is very, very slow. You saw a year and a half of extremely low or negative class eight truck orders month over month over month. Um, capacity had been drawn down. So we were expecting, both when I was in industry and, and then at TAT, um, spring, kind of that produce driven revival of freight in the spring. Um, to kind of signal the next up market, the next big cyclical up market. Um, That would have been sort of level set expectation pre-COVID. Obviously that went completely out the window. But I would say we we didn't start seeing evidence of domestic impact to COVID until late late February. Um, And that's when kind of everything went off the rails and all of those preconceived forecasts went out the window. I wanted to ask you about that, Ken. So when you're saying in 19, I mean, do you guys see, and I kind of wanted to go back even a little bit because I think a lot of that was a lot related back even to the ELDs in 2017. You had that huge year back then. And then obviously everybody kind of flooded the market on the carrier side, brokerages, record numbers of trucks sold, record numbers of brokerages opened the door. Is that kind of why you also think 19 was the year that it was and you were expecting some of these companies to go out of business, shrink some of that capacity to see that kind of pick up? Was that where that came from when you guys were looking at 2020 back a year ago? Yeah, we don't have the data that we have now going back this far, but right, trucking deregulated in 1980, 
And I would suspect that if you had the data back then, you would see a pretty continuous cycle of overinvestment in capacity that drives rates down. The, the low rates cause said capacity to come off the road, whether it's mothballed, bankrupt, lack of replacement orders that drive rates up, and then it goes back. What we've seen in recent years, right, we've been tracking this data for a better part of 10 years, is those cycles are becoming shorter. It used to be a 24-month cycle. It's shortened, and right, pre-COVID, you would have said it was an 18 or so month cycle. And then the peaks and valleys, to kind of touch on that point again, have become higher and lower. So as whereas before, you might see um, 10 to 15% spot market movement up and down. We're starting to see where 18 was 40, 50 higher, depending on what part of the country you were in. And then we crashed down into 19. And then now look at, at 20 heading into 21. You're seeing 55, 60% year over year increases. So that is the cyclic. That's what drives it. And um, to simplify I that, see and a I, change in that. And kind of to simplify that too, as Nate and I were talking about in our last episode, really like what that means is hey, when it's a really profitable industry, there's very low barrier to entry to starting a trucking right. company, to starting a brokerage. So, you know, a lot of other blue collar workers in other industries see or are associated with it and they go over and get into the industry, get their licenses, jump in a truck. And just like Nate and I talk a lot about, it really is just simple supply and demand, right? The same number of things that are being shipped. And if you've got a lower number of people that are able to ship those things, that's what's going to cause exactly what, you know, Ken just outlined in the numbers, that supply and demand cycle. Then the company's got yeah, I mean, business. the free market doesn't have a heart, right? I mean, that's what was sad in May is you see these truckers, they have a legitimate claim, right? I mean, they, they can't feed their families on these rates, but at a certain point, there were too many trucks on the road for the amount of freight, whether you think about it as shipments or tons or miles or hours to go around. So yeah, that, that just, there, there is no, truthfully, there's no ceiling or floor to how high or low spot rates can go. I can remember I've seen actual freight bills at $0 a mile plus fuel coming out of like Lakeland to Atlanta during produce season. Right. Wow. So the, so it, one of the, and it's something we've always hit on is the supply and demand. And, you know, people can have their, their thoughts on regulation and the lack of it. But at the end of the day, I mean, the same, the same thing applies with brokers, Ben. And we've talked about this is the, the barrier to entry as a broker is even lower than being a carrier. Like if you're a carrier, you have to, you've got to have assets and you've got to have a licensed driver yeah. where um, at least one of them, right. To operate legally. Whereas a broker, you just, you have to file for your authority and have a bond and insurance. And it's from there. I mean, you could work off a pencil and paper if you really wanted to, but um, the more brokers that start getting into the industry and they start getting on these load lists. And that's why I think you see a lot of the, a lot of times the, the load to truck ratio and, I've seen like 20, 30, 40 loads to trucks. And it's like, there's not really that many trucks. There's how many brokers are posting the exact same load. Um, you know, and you, you get flooded with these, these new young brokerages that, that hop in because they see an opportunity. And that itself is also going to end up driving down a lot of prices in my mind. Cause it's just, again, an, an addition to the um, supply of people out there working on this business versus the demand for the actual shipping. So um yeah, the one thing I would add is I don't know that it necessarily drives down prices. I think it decreases that opportunity for arbitrage. And what I mean by that is the market becomes much less, fr there's much less friction in the market, right? So when you have more players 
the market responds much faster to those changing supply and demand conditions. And that's literally what we're seeing where, you know, having a, a 30 day average rate on a lane used to be fine 10 years ago. And now we get tons of requests for intraday updates on rates because the move it, the, the, the markets are much more liquid with players, both carriers, brokers, and shippers. And also they're much more transparent. Um, there's 10 different ways you can find out how many trucks or loads or kind of what's going on in a market, right? You can go to different load boards, you can go to different um, uh, broker ecosystems, the digital broker ecosystems and see sort of what's going on. And I think that's really important, right? Because kind of boiling that down too, right? Is what friction really means in the market, right? Is when there isn't a lot of information, not everybody's able to act as quickly. When there aren't as many players, there aren't as many people willing to act when the rates are in different places, right? The more players, the more people sitting at the table, when that rate's falling, there are carriers willing to take the rates that other carriers aren't. So you see more of that fluidity, the less of the friction in the market that's preventing people from having it like you know, Ken said. Before, if there's more friction, the rates will stay longer in the same place before they start moving up and down. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, it's quite literally, right? It's easier to push something on car- on, on hardwood than it is on carpet, right? So that when we say friction, we don't mean it in the literal sense, but it is quite, you know, very much a, 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 a strong figurative representation of what's happening in these markets. Interesting. Um, all right. So let's, let's look back to the beginning of the year, right? So that was kind of our forecast going into it and middle of March pops up. COVID starts to just extremely um, increase in numbers and businesses start to shut down. I think it was the third week of March, right? Somewhere around there that businesses start shutting down. There's stay at home orders. What was kind of the first, I guess the, the first effects that we saw in the freight market, or at least whether it's rates or whatever, Ken, what is kind of the, the first signs that we knew this is a big deal and this is going to be a aggressive, aggressively different year than we've seen in the past? So it was, it was, it was early to mid-March when the signs started appearing, right? Because some, some of the more, um, I would say, I don't even know what's politically correct anymore. Like some of the more progressive states clamped down sooner. <laughs> you could say whatever you want. Uh, right. So um, we saw, we were trying to figure out and follow the news story to start studying the impacts in some of the first mover states to see what the impact would be broadly. But let's just say early March to late June was essentially an entire 18 month freight cycle. And, and think about that, right? And what did you say again, Ken? You said early March to what was the, the window you kind let's of put say out like there? late June before things really just started like, breaking through the ceiling. Yeah. A full 18 month look cycle in two and a half, three months, right? Yeah. We have some really interesting charts and graphs on that that show you saw the toilet paper, bottled water, the just crazy restocking, right? The, the huge switch from um, ballpark, you know, buying hot dogs at a ballpark or a restaurant to buying an eight pack at your grocer, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't get hot dogs, right? We, we talked to companies, food service providers that make hot dogs and they couldn't keep them on the shelves. So it was like 4th of July demand every day for 10 weeks in the grocery stores. So you saw the market rally. That's a really good people, point. I think a lot of people don't think about it that way. Well, the other thing a lot of people don't, and I, I was completely, we were talking to a giant beverage company and they said it's 10 truckloads to every one when you think about canned or bottled versus the syrup in the boxes. Oh yeah. 10 to, 10 one. to one. So there was a global can shortage, right? We had local breweries putting out the call that anyone who had cans, like, you know, not the cans you and I think of, but like commercial 12 ounce cans or pint cans, that they, they would take them because they, they couldn't 
they were canning beer in mislabeled cans and just sticking a new sticker on top. <laughs> right. They were canning their Christmas beer cans that they had already yeah. ordered. They were putting their fall beers in it, you know? Yeah. So, and then everyone had what they needed and you, you literally, the government imposed a way that you could not spend money, right? You, you know, things were really, really locked down. And so the bottom fell out and the bottom fell out at just a record pace. You know, we saw, I won't say the lowest it's been because we don't have data going back that far, but it was definitely like seven, eight, nine, ten year lows that we were experiencing. And the the rate at which it fell from that kind of toilet paper peak, we call it to that bottom, it was just over the course of not even a couple of weeks. Speaking of which, the toilet paper peak was the other interesting thing. And I was reading another article on that was the majority of people, right, go to the bathroom outside of their home in normal scenarios, right? Well, that that product is packaged commercially, huge rolls. When you go to buy it for what it goes in your house, it's a completely different product. And they had to reconfigure and resupply, just like you said. It's a much different than, you know, the cans versus the boxes of syrup. Same thing with toilet paper. And then you had people hoarding it on top of it, which then exacerbated that. Yeah. I mean, and then you had all of it. You, you bought five years worth of toilet paper and bottled water over the course of two weeks and then bottom fell out. Um, and then it, I mean, if you look at like, in, it felt really bad at the time because of how fast things were changing, but we really weren't at that bottom for very long, right? Once, once things started to ease a bit as we marched through April and early May and right around mid-May, things started to look brighter and then it was just shot out of a cannon, right? I mean, rates at that point from the bottom of it, rate went increased week over week nationally <clears throat> until like, Thanksgiving week. I mean, it was just it, just an incredible kind of bull run of rates um, that we saw. And, you know, it's positive for carriers. Absolutely. But that volatility is just because it wasn't positive for all carriers. What if you're hauling auto parts? Yep. Yeah, uh, that's a good vehicles. point. That's a, that's a mean, good point. So uh, it seems like a lot of the, the impact is people were still consuming the same goods. It's the way that they we're consuming them. And then also, like you mentioned, the government began to restrict what you could go spend your money on. Um, a, a, an odd example that uh, we I've, I have is a, a broker agent. Um, his main commodity that he moved was like kitty litter. And they were considered an essential service. They were allowed to produce and manufacture it. But part, one, of the, one of the items that they used to package it or to find some, something like with the labeling or something, they were shut down, so they couldn't even finish their product and ship it out. So um, it was so strange how things were labeled, like certain industries were shut down. And there was, it's kind of, you know, one of the first times in modern history that we've had to, to think on this large of a scale of how to keep control of everything. And like you said, yeah, it, we didn't, we were at the bottom for very long. It was maybe a five, six week period before, you know, it was shot out the cannon. So um, a lot happened in that, in that time period. Do you think we saw, um, trucking companies start to go out of business that fast in that first two months after shutdowns or was the I mean, effect longer than that? If they were in poor financial footing before, I mean, it may have been the thing to push them over the edge. If their drivers went out, of, if they couldn't put drivers in the truck because they were getting the unemployment or, or whatever the conditions were, sure. Um, I'm sure that happened. Um, it happened so, it was so acute. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, 
19, without a doubt, right, without even looking at numbers, 19 had a much more cumulative negative effect on trucking companies than that little six, even if you call it a 10 week down period yeah. in the spring. Even though rates came down much, much, much further than a whole year of uh, 98% OR, if you're lucky, does a lot more damage than 10 weeks of 102% OR. Yeah, that now, economic trough, right, was short and it yeah. was deep, but it wasn't long, right? 19, it was very extended, maybe a little bit shallower. Yeah, it's, it's a three-legged stool, right? It's magnitude and direction and duration, right? So if rates are up directionally for a short period of time, but up a lot, that has an impact. Um, if rates are down a little bit, but for a long time, that has an impact. So it's, these, it's really a balancing act. Uh, but again, if you rolled into 20, right, if you got out of February on your biweekly truck payment levered to your, you know, levered to your ears on your, you know, your notes on your truck um, and you were running low margin freight, uh, yeah, that may have been enough to push you over the edge. That's we didn't kinda, see it as a macro event, though. Yeah, that's kind of what the way I looked at it is that I think that there was a kind of like what you said, it, it was such a long duration last year that I think a lot of uh, companies got themselves into poor financial standing and and footing that they couldn't weather a bad storm, even if it was just a short bad storm. Um, so I think that was kind of the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back per se. Um, it's interesting to me that you, I didn't know that, that 2019 overall was a, had a worse impact in the big picture than 2020 did. I, I, I oh yeah. No if you look at like the trucking bankruptcies, the, the driver recruitment, a lot of that, I mean, uh, almost every key stat 2019 was a very rough year. Um, for carriers and, and just I look at like, you know, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to interject with what Nate and I were talking about in the last episode. We talked about margins, right? And I just wanted to simplify what we just kind of talked through, what that really means if you just owned a trucking company, right? If your margins are so thin or even upside down for a short period of time, you can usually weather that storm, borrow a little bit of money, you can make some payments, you can make that a month or two. But what we're talking about is 2019 margins were so thin and for so long that a lot of the trucking companies ran out of the ability to either borrow more money or to just keep people employed. So they go out of business. Well, in 2020, that happened, but it didn't happen for as long. So it's just like, hey, if you got paid half your salary for a month or two, maybe you can survive. If you had to do that for an entire year, that was 2019 versus early 2020. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look. Look at the public. I mean, I, I'm not trying to equate a publicly traded carrier for kind of a 10 truck fleet or an owner operator. But I mean, when's the last time any of us have seen a large publicly traded carrier with a 75% OR over an entire quarter? I mean, those things are just unheard of, right? I mean, 25% margin in asset based trucking, like, it's just, it's bananas. So um, the evidence is there that, you know, we, Plus, they, if they if they pocketed the money in March when they were making two fifty a mile to haul super lightweight goods or low density goods, that should have bolstered them in uh, April and May. Should, um, should have. Now, again, it's a very irrational industry, especially as the, as the fleets get smaller. Um, it's not like they have an account. You know, a five truck fleet probably doesn't have a team of accountants you know, accruing for bad debt. And you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're getting their signed POD and they're factoring the receivable. And exactly. On You're talking weeks, 
weeks and yeah. days they're trying to turn over cash because i mean as opposed to a company that's you know looking at 30 60 90 days and has a team actually managing their finances which is what you know yeah. nate and i talk a lot about is you know the struggles for a smaller carrier are really similar to a smaller business and even just a person's finances than they are some of the bigger carriers that are operating like a corporation that have the ability like you said to lever on debt to be able to go and raise equity smaller companies don't have that ability I mean, we have this conversation internally all the time, even with brokers, right? You think about, uh, well, they're a $50 million brokerage. They should have account. I'm like, dude, they're probably on QuickBooks. Yep. You know, I mean, $50 million sounds like a lot of revenue, but you're probably five to seven folks and maybe a couple back office staff just grinding it out. Um, like five to seven salespeople. And then you have kind of your, your, your ops folks and whatnot, but. I was going to say, it'd be fairly impressive if it just got seven people total oh. running a $50 million. Well, the industry don't know who that is. About a million dollars per broker? Is that is that still kind of hold? What's that? a million dollars per broker? I say um, usually about a million dollars per head total. So you could be, say you're a $20 million brokerage, you might have 20 people in seats total. Maybe a little over half of those are actually uh, brokers or acting in a broker capacity. And then you've got your accounting, your carrier development, you know, team leaders, yeah. ops people, whatnot. Um, I usually say about a, a million ahead. Um, so, yeah. Ben, you work with a lot of, you know, you coach a lot of them. Do you, uh, have you ever gone down that? That's actually an interesting statistic when it comes to the growth of a brokerage is, you know, when to hire and what's kind of the, the trend. Have you, you know, ever had that conversation about body? I am more and more. And it's interesting because we're putting more content together for, you know, education and to help a lot of these smaller companies and brokerages. I was a banker in a former life. That's where I started my career. And I think a lot of that stuff's going to be useful. I want to be able to put some more content out for that because they're not financially savvy. They don't. And it's the, it's the known, the unknown unknowns, right? I don't know what I don't know. I don't know that I need an accountant. I don't know that I need somebody to help me manage this, but it's the lifeblood literally of your business. And if you're not managing this, I mean, I coach people all the time, been in business five, six years doing a handful of million dollars a year. They don't know their expenses. They legitimately don't know what they are. And it's like, how do you, op I mean, it's like operating a business literally blindfolded, not knowing if you're taking loads that are even profitable or they're costing you money. And that's a lot of the, I think, awareness that hopefully we can help bring about in the industry. And it doesn't mean you need to go and have an accounting department the size of, you know, these huge publicly traded companies, but having somebody that you're able to talk through and guide some of these decisions because they're impacting it. And that's one of the reasons why these companies don't have the ability to sustain a year of below market rates and some of these things. It's it's the lack of, I, I don't want to say sophistication, but even just the ability to understand how the business is living and breathing throughout the year. I think the yeah. same thing about analytics, right? I mean, I have these, I have a strong passion around bringing this down, down market, right? Bringing, you don't have to be the top 10, you know, billion dollar brokerages to have a sense of data analytics in your shop, right? And I have these conversations several times a week around, well, you know, this is all great, but there's no way I can stand up, just pick anything like a cloud database solution. I'm like, you know, that may have been true 10 years ago when you had to like partner with Oracle to come on-prem and put servers on the ground. But look, man, you can sign up for a Google cloud or, you know, whatever cloud hosting solution and get up and running with a Snowflake or similar um, solution and be, you pay per use. And all of a sudden you're, you have the same 
stack. Same resources, same information, right? And that's, um, I mean, that's how you make those decisions, right? And that's yeah. really, I mean, talk, talk a little bit more about that, Ken. I mean, when you see brokers or I guess some of the individuals you work with, what does their performance, what does their efficiency look like as they start to use some of the tools that you just mentioned, which are really, right, more information, more insight into the market that they're operating in, right? Like, do you see profitability go up kind of as they start to implement some of these things? What do you guys see from your end? So it's a couple of different things. Just like um, I'd be interested to get your take on the first part I'm about to say is that brokers, I think they attain shells as they grow. I think it's harder to break through certain like resistance bands of size, right? Yes. Um, the problems that a $5 million broker has that are a lot different than like a, a $49 million broker. And you know what those shelves are, and especially the hundred, I think a hundred million dollars is like a very, very defined break in Yes. The left and right hand side of that. So what we see is a lot of folks, I think the answer to that question is different depending on where you are in your journey, right? If you're an $80 million broker today and, you know, you've committed to your investors or your internal management, depending on your structure that you're going to break a hundred million run rate next year, you really are thinking about some of these core, you probably have brought someone in that's worked in data and analytics, either in the industry or in a different industry. And you're really thinking about this because you're going from data and analytics, the seat level to at the enterprise level. And, you know, we could talk all day about this, but I think a great example is pricing because I have direct experience with this. When you take pricing and it doesn't have to be the most sophisticated, like Delta airlines or American airlines seat pricing model, right? Which is a hundred million dollar probably capital on their balance sheet. It's just, I'm going to standardize across all my truck finders, a way that we're going to go to market and hold them accountable to, more than just a margin number, but like a, a, a percent to market number. Companies have huge success with that, right? Because that money that you leave on the table never appears in any financial statement. Yeah, the opportunity cost. It's just, right. you just don't notice it. And so that, that first truck I call at $1,000 gets me the 15% that I'm gold on, I'm gonna take it. But if the market would have bear at 850, and I know that, that's $150 I have in my pocket and I might use that to grow because I can go get a load that I maybe, you know, that might pay me 95% PT that that $150 will offset. So it's more so it's you're arming yourself to make, to, to be, be a better decision maker, which will ultimately lead to higher, you know, more profitability and all that good stuff. So that's uh and Ben, we talked about that as, you know, if you spend, spend the little bit of extra time to, talk to more carriers instead of just taking the first truck that's willing to, to do it for you. Like you said, Ken, uh, hits, you know, it's thousand dollar truck hits my 15% goal that I got to hit. So um, yeah, I think having that, having that knowledge and that information going into it is, is crucial. And what I've seen too is when folks that I deal with mostly agents. So folks that have been either very heavily on account management or very heavily on, um, operations. And when they transition to an agent and they're doing full cradle to grave, they might not be as, I guess, trained or um, it's not in their in their blood to be looking at the data and the analytics like somebody else might have in their company prior to that. So when they go and take that full spectrum thing, it's kind of, you have to, you have to go through that process of make sure you're, you know, if you, if you've got um, DAT, if you're looking at um, rate view, you could take a look at the what is it? The seven day on there or whatever, I guess whatever data you can get your hands on 
the, you know, the more is going to be better for you. So, and a lot of folks are just like, Oh, I know that lane last year, this time of year, it'll pay, you know, two bucks a mile. It's like stuff can change throughout the day, let alone, you know, by a week or throughout the month. So, um, Kind of then, having to retrain the brain on using the data that's out there is is a struggle for a lot of folks as they get into it. So, and I think and trust that, is huge, right? Yeah, learning to trust it. Like I'm going to pay money for this. Is it is it worth it? How do I know? Where is it coming from? And I think that's that's actually a good question. Is where does the data come from? Because obviously, you know, whether it's DAT or any other company, you're gonna t- you're gonna take a look at data that you've got your own hands on, right? So if it's brokers posting loads or carriers accepting loads through a platform that you guys own and operate or through a factoring company that you have affiliation with, you can see actual data and actual rates that are happening. Um, but what is, is there a reach beyond that, that you're pulling market information from? So I think I'll, the, the first part of that is uh, we went through a kind of a, 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 I think it was a podcast or something on this, but just to kind of reiterate for folks, um, if, if you're interested in data and the company that you're interested in talking to doesn't want to tell you where it comes from. Um, I would be, I would trust your gut on that and be, be very, very skeptical um, of the quality and kind of yeah. the applicability of, of said data. So um, at DAT, it's, it's never factored. It's never from the load board, like bid rates. It's all paid freight bills, confer- confirmed paid freight bills. And we get that from shippers, carriers, and brokers. Um, and, you know, the legacy rate view database is, I think, running at about $68, $70 billion a year of freight transactions. We acquired um, uh, the data and analytics piece from Chainalytics earlier this year. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong and I should know it. It's like $128 billion total. That's predominantly contract, right? We, we recognize okay. that everyone's really interested in contract rates because you know a lot of them have gotten really good at spot pricing. So we went out and made a strategic play to expand there. So it comes in every day, right? Um, we, we, we clean it. We make sure that it's fully anonymized. So no one, that's like the number one fear we hear. Like, I don't want to out myself as I'm paying this on this lane, right? So we make sure that there's there's tons of controls in place. And ultimately, you know, we present our rate back as, as recently as one day, you know, a one day rate on a lane going all the way back to like 30 days for contract rates. Because contract rates, you want to, you, you don't want to be kind of real jumpy with contract rates. You want to understand kind of the longer arc of time. And I wanted to go back to a point you made a, a couple moments ago, right? When you don't understand the opportunity cost or just making better decisions and where you see those costs also in smaller brokerages is when you don't understand where the market really is, another huge cost that I'm seeing as I work with more of these brokers is that they'll quote something and definitely in the spot world and they'll go and spend two, three, four times the amount of time trying to cover a load that they'll never be able to cover because it was misquoted. And it's, you know, why it was misquoted in the first place is obviously not aware, not understanding where the market is, also not understanding that it might've fluctuated since there, but that helps you save a ton of time. That's a big cost for a small brokerage. When you have a handful or just a couple dozen people and they're spending two, three hours to cover a load that should have taken 20 minutes, 50 minutes, right? That's a big cost. And they're like, I just don't understand how I'm ever gonna scale. How am I ever gonna get to real numbers? And it's, it starts with the better decisions up front and it's just knowing where the market is, right? It would be like going to the market and having no idea what it costs and trying to determine what you're going to spend to buy your groceries before you walked in there. Like they're predictable. So you got a general idea. Can't operate your business with no idea what you're going to pay and what you should be charging. You know, we talked a lot about trucker margins, right? Carrier margins. But I mean, this is the broker margin story is far more interesting this year, right? Because it's been 
just this incredible seesaw, right? And a lot of that has to do with, it's not just rates going up and down, it's these tried and true norms that we all accept because they've happened this way for so long being completely turned on their head, right? Um, you know, an example. we don't think of, so uh, uh, LA to Denver, um, it's traditionally a head haul back haul lane. Anyone that's kind of in freight knows, you know, plays in that lane knows those dynamics. Uh, well, the back haul hasn't changed much during COVID. It's a dollar a mile. Um, the head haul is four dollars a mile, right? It was two fifty something like that before COVID started. Um, it's a huge you know, like. And how long is it? Oh yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you you lose. But then it's all of LA, right? We could look at LA as a as a as a microcosm of LA to Dallas, LA to Atlanta, LA to Chicago. Then LA, you know, and a lot of this, there's all these exogenous variables driving it. It was the port activity. It was the the lack of intermodal capacity going east, right? The, the huge surcharges being put in place that drove more um, to the over the road. So if you if you didn't have insight into that, uh, you could rack up 10, because you're going to win a ton of business, right? If, you, if you're pricing a dollar a mile low mm-hmm. going into Denver, the, the shipper will give you as much business as you say you'll take. Yeah. And that's what um, happens. And then you either blow up your relationship or you lose a ton of money. And I want to ask, because we get asked this a lot, you know, you know, what should our margins be? Where should we be? Are we in line with where the market is, right? You know, if kind of everybody's sitting here towards the end of the year, they're going to be looking back on their books or should be looking back through 2020 and, you know, getting an idea of how they fared. What would you say were the kind of the trends throughout 2020, right? For just percentages for brokers, where did they start? Where did you see them peak? When did they fall? Where are they now? Because you guys usually do like a quarterly release on it. And I, I don't think I've seen anything throughout 2020 on broker margin. So I was kind of curious. To, I'm curious to see what your take is on where it's been. So let's just kind of level set because I want to get your guys' take on this as well before I even okay. dive too far into it. Uh, the general philosophy I've kind of learned to adopt is brokers do better from a margin percentage perspective in lower rate markets, but they have less volume yep. and they have more volume in lower margins and high rate markets. Does that kind of jive with what you hear out there? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, didn't we talk about this before Ben is when the market shifts, if you know, as, as rates go in one direction, we, we totally, we broke this down and I remember drawing a graph out too, but if, if you can get ahead of it, yeah, it's usually when it's, when the, when the rates are going down. Is when yeah, you see so, so kind of playing that narrative back, um, February, or let's just say late, late February, March and early April. Um, very good. Right. I mean, so the, the rapidity with which things changed, um, if, I mean, it's kind of a tricky situation to navigate, right? So uh, the shipper tends to respond to the pricing changes at a different pace than the carrier, right? So if markets are rising at 10% per week and you're maybe capturing 8% of that as a broker, but you're only passing, you know, your carrier base isn't maybe- doesn't That was the exact analogy that we used. That, that's what it was. And I remember drawing yeah. it out and being like, Cause your customer's not going to start paying more when There's you're paying lag. the carrier more. It, it, they, they're going to catch up to it. And the, and yeah. the brokers eat that in the and middle until it catches up. Way. So that's exactly what we saw in that sort of extreme volatile period, right? If we had a VIX for trucking, it would be pushing all-time highs in that uh, second second quarter. Um, it's been pretty tight through most of the summer and fall. We have start to see, we've starting to see things loosen up, I think, as folks 
because you got to think too, it's not just spot, right? They've, they've had to rebalance and they've gotten some bids in place and they've, the RFPs that they, they finalized in Q3 and early Q4 have been put in the routing guide. And I think a lot of the mid to large brokers have, they're starting to gain some ground back. But if you look at the publicly traded ones, um, I'm not going to mention any names, but you know, you look at those 10 Qs, it was a rough third quarter for margins. Um, surprisingly though, um, really small brokers, they actually fared pretty well. Cause a lot of those brokers, you mentioned Kitty Litter, a lot of those small brokers are tied to an industry or kind of tied to a niche segment. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm saying. Some of those say. segments have done really well. So, I mean, if you were a broker that was supporting bounty toilet paper or you know, paper towels, I have to imagine you've been doing pretty well on your margins all year. I have some guys um, that shipped Purell that did obviously very well this year. Um, but so Gojo is literally the one building across and my former director kind of who hired me in at my prior company, I mean, talk about falling into something. He took a, you know, early retirement at my prior company and then goes and works at Go, uh, Gojo and less than a year later, the pandemic hits. Yeah. Being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I wish I was that lucky. <laughs> <laughs> the um, But it's funny when you said smaller brokerages, because I mean, going back to what it was like when I did the job and, you know, my peers, the ones that I would see in like my best quarters were when obviously the transition. So when the rates were spiking and capacity was shrinking, if you were able to be agile enough to prospect or get in front of customers that had products that had to go, my margins would go up as the rates would go up because it's directly related to how much time I'm going to spend to cover it. So if I'm on the phone with you and that load has to go and I would ship a lot of ingots where cost was huge. If they didn't get them to the other end, it was going to shut the production line down. They paid what it costs. If it has to go, I got to spend four or five people, two hours to get some of these loads covered. You're going to be paying for the team. It's worth it to you because the overall cost is still there, but we would see our margin spike. But like you said, that's definitely not contract. Those are the smaller, really savvy brokers that understand what the market's doing and are able to capitalize on that as that's happening. Yeah, I think you're, that's more the exception than the rule when you look at oh, it. Yeah. But you, you make a good yeah. point. And as these, or Ben or Ken, one, one of you, two yin, one of two, you yins. One of uh, yins. That the, <laughs> the, the smaller brokers that kind of have a niche, whether they're, you know, whether they're heavily dependent on um, building materials or produce or whatever it might be that, yeah, they may have had a very, very good year with a good margin um, or vice versa. If their, if their niche was a, you know, something that was heavily impacted and shut down. So um, that's a, it's an interesting way to look at it. So let's, let's kind of reel back into, you know, we go through the March through late June, you get a whole market cycle in there. Um, so what happens then? I, I, Cause I want to get us through what happened the second half of the year and seeing what's happened throughout the entire year. What can we take away as lessons learned? Cause it's not the last time that hopefully it's the last time in our lifetime that we have a pandemic, but it's not the last time in our lifetime that there's going to be something that dramatically impacts the market quick. So what happened throughout the second half of the year and what can we learn from what's happened? Um, you know, imbalance, I think, is the big word um, that has dominated the second half of the year. So um, a lot of us, you know, I never, I, I've never really moved freight. Right? I've always priced the freight. I was always, even right. when I was working in, so I work very closely with the sales and ops managers. But when I think about imbalance in a non-asset world, 
there's a big semantical difference when we talk about this, right? Because when you talk to a, an LTL guy or, or gal and they think imbalance, they think trailers piling up and they got to you know, put them on the rail and you know, that's what imbalance to them. So to us in, in the non-asset space, it's like LA to Denver. There's no trailers piling up on one end or the other. It's just, there's more freight going one direction than the other on the spot market. And that drives the rates up or down in both directions. So when, when we talk about the second half, I think about imbalance and I think about spot versus contract imbalance. Um, we all live and breathe talking about the spot market, but it's still a small fraction of the total for higher truck market, which is in, even in then is half of the total truck market when you private and dedicated and kind of not for hire. I would say so spot let's just say that you're an average. nearly doubled, right? Yeah. So yeah, uh, you stole my thunder a bit, but yeah. So if you look at an average shipper, big shipper, <laughs> blue chip shipper, 12% maybe on a, on a, on a, on a heavy spot year, if they're, if they're doing their job and they're, they're managing their procurement and their routing guys, well, they're probably at 25 pushing 30% right now. Um, latest numbers coming out of FMIC. I think we're 108% increase in spot shipments from shippers um, year over year. And that's but what question. you look at is super interesting, right? And this is really hard. It takes a lot of time to explain, especially when you have some of these kind of, um, you know, national national inquirer types is total volumes. If you look at ATA tonnage, if you look at CAS, if you look at the Michigan State Index, if you look at the DAT Index, if you look at the FMIC Index, they all show total tonnage and volumes rather static. And why is that, right? Well, there's less contract automotive freight moving, but for if, if, the, if the contract market is 80%, if it's 10 times the size, let's say, for every 1% contract that sheds into the spot market, it's a 10% increase in the spot market, right? So these imbalances, these spot to contract shifts, these commercial to grocery shifts, these packaging shifts have all disrupted supply chains in a way that more freight is ending up on the spot market, even though there's not in gross aggregate more things to ship. Um, and that's what, in my opinion, in the second half of the year and kind of backed up by the data that we see, that's what's driven the market into this frenzy, especially the spot market. So, um, and I want you to go a little deeper to that too, because the other question I have is, is that also, is that direct, is it a cause or effect of the rejection rate from the contracts? So is that the after effect that then also speeds up? the fact that some more of those loads then hit the spot rate, like it's kind of like a spiraling effect? It's a yes and, right? So early, so let's, okay, let's just completely jettison the actual lockdown era. We're in kind of the second two quarters of the year now. We saw a bit of that. What we heard by and large, and we, we have round tables with shippers every other week. Um, we talked to a lot of asset and non-asset carriers. Routing guides were holding at committed volumes. Kind of like the, the 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 inside baseball of freight sometimes that the broader market doesn't understand is there's committed and flex volume in just about every freight contract. So maybe I'm committing to 100 loads a week, uh, with a flex up to 120. So they were they were they were they didn't want to burn bridges like they did in 18. So they're committing to the 100, and then those other 20 are falling to the spot market. We did kind of leading into the early Thanksgiving holiday push, see routing guides break down a bit. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the RFPs that shippers hoped to execute in Q1 and Q2 didn't get executed. So the rates just were, were way too inconsistent. But now that you're seeing those rates being replaced at higher and higher 
rates on the contract side, it is taking some of the pressure off of the spot market. Routing guides are in better shape. Um, I genuinely don't believe there's a great kind of overall industry metric on rejection, but if you look at some of the ones that are out there, I think you have seen short of like Thanksgiving week and some kind of the odd like Labor Day. I think you have seen those numbers ease a bit. Um, and what I saw with guys that like I actually work with, right, coach and like, really getting into the nuts and bolts of this is that they're seeing their customers come back and it's the fluctuation rates, right? Nate and I talk a lot about the difference between an asset and a broker, right? An asset and their their ability is to work on a predicted basis. So as Ken said, you know, they want to see trends. It's going to be predictable. You can buy more assets. It's not the big fluctuations. The brokers operate in a market that is much shorter term. It's helping to fill supply and demand. So there's bigger fluctuations. But what you saw was when these large shippers were having loads not picked up because the rates weren't in line, right? If you're a carrier and you agreed to whatever, a dollar fifty a mile, but you could get $2.50 a mile in the spot market, you don't pick up your loads in some case. You go across the street and make twice the amount of money because a contract is not what I think a lot of people think it is as a new broker. It is not like a legal binding contract that means you have to pick this load up, right? <laughs> come arrest you if you don't haul our freight. Exactly. It's a commitment. If I have a shipment, yes. if you agree to take it, and if I decide to give it to you, you have to move it at this set rate. <laughs> and basically, say that again. Basically, all they're doing is they're just agreeing to a rate ahead of time if they decide to work together. It's right. That's all it comes yeah. down to. But that's important because I think a lot of new brokers think it's the holy grail when you get contracted rate that it's guaranteed, but it, it really isn't. It's an agreed upon, one more time, Ken. So it's, we agree to the rate, right? And the, Yeah, if I have the freight, if you're available to take it and I decide to give it to you, you have to haul it for this rate. Right. So when rates are fluctuating- I mean, that, that's as simple as it is, right? I mean, it's, yeah. there, there is no, unless you're in dedicated, right? Unless you're- um, I have seen, right, where, uh, especially if you're an asset carrier, there are dedicated agreements in certain industries, especially like super high value where the trailers are customized or it's like a box yeah. truck. That's different. There's an exception to every rule. But yeah, by and large, freight contract, they're called paper rates for a reason. Yeah. And it's just like in produce season, right? If the guy across the street wants to stay at $1.50 a mile because he ships, ships the same goods every day all year, but the guy across the street is willing to pay whatever it takes because if his watermelons doesn't ship, they're literally worth nothing in a week or in a couple of days. They're willing to pay what it costs because the risk's higher. So the truck stops picking up the freight for $1.50 a mile, goes across the street, picks up the $4 a mile freight. What does the guy at $1.50 a mile, his contract becomes useless. He's now subject to the rate across the street and has to pay more. That's yep. really all we're talking about. Yeah, it's a lesson in free market economics, right? That's that. That's yeah, the truck is fungible. Right? The commodity being shipped is not. Right? You know what I mean? So it's like- mm -hmm. That's kind so of how I think about the it. recurring theme on this show is uh, supply and demand. I mean, that is the the one thing that if because what I kind of wanted to hit on at the end of the episode was, you know, when it comes to analytics and understanding pricing and fluctuations, what should the the average user in the brokerage world understand? And I think it's the concept to me, it's the concept of supply and demand because there could be a bunch of things that are affecting either side to that, but just to, to understand that when those do happen, that that's the result and that the pricing will, will follow suit with it. Um, but uh, I, I kind of wanted to reel, reel everything back here. So unless you guys had anything else to head on there before we get back to the, to, towards the end of the year and what we could take moving forward. So good stuff. But yeah, 
Simple economics lesson right there. I, I like it. Um, so the year wraps up. Well, it will in, you know, what, two weeks here. But um, 2021, right? So like I just mentioned, the the advice that we can give, what we've learned is that the concept and understanding the the fluctuations and what impacts the market, I think it's it's important to have that understood at the at the user level, right? The, the broker, whether they're a cradle to grave uh, pricing their customer and negotiating with carriers on the phone, or if they're just sitting in one of those seats, um, I think it's important to understand it. But Ken, can you speak in any further detail on what has 2020 specifically taught us that we should take with us forward in our careers to understand when big things like this happen, what to expect? I think a couple of things, uh, primarily volatility, I think is here to stay. Um, our spot market is looking more and more and has for the past few years, like oil or um, natural gas, you know, a lot of these things that are traded that are very liquid um, that have these external market forces that drive them up or down. So I think if you're a broker, especially a new broker entering the market, I think you have to have an appetite for volatility because I don't know that that's going to go away. And in fact, I don't think it will. I think one of the things that surprised me is um, sometimes analytics can seem like a luxury item and we've seen quite the opposite. I mean, we forget, depending on, you know, especially given how good times are now, I mean, there were major brokerages announcing furloughs and layoffs and reductions just a few short months ago, right? In Q, end of Q1, start of Q2. Um, the things that they weren't cutting were their investment in data and analytics, right? Because they're kind of fundamental to their operating success. And absolutely the reason that it, yeah, you know, the reason that is, is it's all about, I mean, when I was at my prior company, I was, I was adamant that it wasn't going to be called data science. It was going to be called decision science, right? Because data science can sometimes take a very academic slant. But when you're talking about, you have the whole organization driving towards making better decisions. Everyone can take part in that. You don't need a PhD in statistics. Everybody wants to get on board with that, right? Yeah. Better decisions. I want to make better decisions. If my brokers, if my truck finders, um, if my accounts receivable and payable staff, they all make better decisions, right? And it could be something as simple as electronic bill of ladings, right? So I don't have to worry about matching signatures and freight payment companies denying or short paying. If we all make better decisions, we will be more successful uh, as a broker, a shipper, or a carrier, quite frankly. I think that's what 2020, I think, will be the lasting impact is this need to make faster decisions better. Um, Because you don't have a day to think about it when the market's moving so fast. You know, I can't go level. We used to have weekly pricing meetings instead of pricing strategy. I have to imagine now a year removed from industry, they're having daily pricing meetings to set pricing and margin guidance for the entire floor. Um, And, you know, I don't think you put that toothpaste back in the tube around the volatility and the, the need to make faster decisions. It's a great the point. need always should have been there. I think it's just now it's become so painful when you make a poor decision that people realize they should have been making good decisions the entire time and having some of the data to back it up. And I think, like you said, like data and when, when you talk about it, or it, like it seems very high level and academic in a lot of cases. And it's from other uses of it in the industry and buzzwords. But at the end of the day, we're talking about just better information on what you have to pay when you get a truck, 
better information on what you should charge or have to quote before you have to go and find said truck, right? The closer those two numbers are when you when you give them to your customers, the more likely are you are gonna be successful a day later or a week later when you go to secure the capacity to just haul the load that you just took from your customer. Yeah. I think um, the one thing I'll add, it's been eye-opening for me is, I, I have to imagine you guys hear this too. A lot of brokers spend most of their time thinking about their truck pricing and costing methodologies, right? They spend far little time thinking about how they price their shipper. Yes. Some of the best, most cutting edge brokers, regardless of size, right? They don't have to be the, you know, the billion dollar poster child, you know, the private, inve- private equity poster children of the, our industry. They are putting more and more time and money and effort into studying and executing better customer pricing. Because if you price the customer, the shipper correctly, everything trickles down. It's not just higher profits to your point, Ben. It's, you, 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 it's easier to cover the truck. Lower operation costs, right? Yeah. More efficient. Faster turn times, lower cost to cover, yeah. lower carrier rejection. Um, improved customer satisfaction because you're not turning back shipments. Um, Calling back with fallouts because your truck went and took a higher price load because you were right and the truck wasn't aware either, but they found out when they before they picked up the load and then went and took something else, right? Yeah. I think... Um, Someone, one of the other kind of industry voices said this, it's like lower prices can sometimes force you to make a marginal decision on what carrier you decide to hire. And, you know, God forbid that can have sometimes very negative. Oh consequences, yeah. Right? And you're backed up against the wall and you'll take, yeah. you'll take the new guy with the two days of authority and. Yeah. Ink's yeah. not even dry on the insurance insurance certification. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about that one recently too. Uh, but it's true, right? It's, having the right amount of money in the load trickles and cascades the whole way through your business. So again, I don't know if that's, I think being cognizant is, is probably good advice for a really small broker, but as you grow um, and you do have a pretty good handle on costing, you're making better decisions, you're using data to kind of figure out what your cost is going to be. Starting to think a little bit more and more and more about not just cost plusing it and, and, and pricing to market on the, on the, on the, what we call the sell side, I think can pay dividends for you down the road as you grow. And you know why I think the cause of that is like from the ground level working with these guys is that they feel they have no control over price because shippers on the phone stand resolute that no matter what, rate, rate, rate is the only thing that matters. And if you want to do business with me, it needs to be rate. So there's this perception from brokers that shippers have some control over the rate. And there's some perception from shippers that larger brokerages have some control over the rate. And the reality is, is neither one of them do. And to your point, if you've got more accurate pricing to your customers on the sell side, you are ultimately going to be more competitive throughout the year. You will win more business because you're more in line with what they should be paying. And maybe they aren't aware of this at first, but if you are listening to some of the stuff we talk about, educating, becoming a consultant when you're speaking with your shipper and letting them know, hey, I understand where you're getting your numbers from, why you think the rate should be here. This is what's going on in the market and why. Hey, I wish you the best. If you think you can get this 20% below me, please take that truck, book it. This is what you should be aware of. That's likely gonna be a truck that has a much higher out of service percentage, a much lower quality of actual vehicle picking up your load, much higher chance it doesn't make it there. And hey, maybe for that shipper, that's okay. Maybe they're willing to save the money and hope that it gets there on time. But if you're shipping produce or lettuce and you, you got to get it to Trader Joe's or wherever, that's not going to fit. They don't have the ability to price that. The market is pricing it. Everybody's subject to it at that point. I think the thing, again, when you really step back and think about it, um, 
shipper, we think of shippers as shippers. They don't see them. I mean, the procurement guy or gal may think of, you know, that's their, they're not a shipper. Purdue chicken Sells raises <laughs> and ships. This chicken. is a very good point. Yep. Yeah. Right. They might move a billion dollars worth of freight. I don't know how much they move, but they might move a half a billion dollars worth of freight every year. But in their board meeting, they're not just sitting around most years, 99% of the time, not talking about shipping, right? They're talking about chickens mm-hmm. and, you know, farms and labor issues and all of this other stuff. And I think it's our job. And if we're doing our jobs really, really well, we're providing an essential service. We're providing it safe and effectively and at a market appropriate price. And if that's the case, I think the best, the best conversations I've had with shippers in my career is like, I didn't hear a peep about you from any of my peers or bosses this year. And that's the best thing that could happen. Right. You mm-hmm. moved my freight. I didn't have any issues. I didn't have any theft, loss, production outages. You didn't blow up my budget. Thank you. You know what I mean? I think that's probably the best news you could be getting right now when you're having your ear end reviews with your customers is you were, I didn't hear about you. Yeah. Um, no news is good news when it comes to the yeah. transportation side of it. So I've got, I've got one- chickens, right? We didn't touch on this and I meant to bring it up. Uh, you know, we talked about some of these goods that had to move earlier in the year. I learned, and it's, uh, this is a way that you can cut this out, but they rate, these chickens grow so fast that if they don't harvest them within like a week and when they had to shut down for COVID, they had these like turkey sized chickens or like tens of thousands. <laughs> of them. And it made national news because they had to like, they had to destroy these chickens <laughs> because oh they grow gosh. so fast. And it's like, <laughs> it's a very freight centric problem, right? It's like, we're going to need a bigger truck. Chains, everything, has, yeah, everything has become so razor's edge from start to finish in the supply chain that days matter. You know what I mean? It's like all back to yeah. this decision-making. It's like, um, I don't have, even in something as kind of weird as chickens and, you know, livestock, I don't have a week's worth of, of flex in my supply chain. I have a day. Um, and, and that's, that's just capitalism, changed. right? That's the efficiency. That's the efficiency yeah. of the market is the they're doing everything as efficiently as possible. If these loads aren't going out and their chickens aren't getting off the farm, they don't, the next chickens that are going into being whatever that is, they're too big. And like you said, like they don't, it doesn't work. Now all of a sudden you got a, you got a bunch lot. of turkey sized chickens running around and you don't know what to do with them. <laughs> Good stuff. The visual I, got- I had of a turkey sized chicken when you said that was. Yeah. I, I have one final uh, question and then we'll wrap it up here. So my question to you, Ken, should brokers have to disclose their customer rates and margins to their carriers? Cause this was a hot topic. Yeah. I'm not going to answer that question, but I will say, see, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> my, my personal belief on that is I don't know that it would change any behavior. Mm-hmm. Quite I think why was, was that rule put in place? I think it may just you guys it may know? just make people a little bit, you know, a little more animosity. But I don't think the behavior really changes that much. I agree. I do. Do you guys know why that rule was put in place? No. Uh, I I mean it's an, kind of an old rule, right? But I figured it had something to do with deregulation and some sort of way of keeping regulation in play. But what? Uh, tell us the story on it. Well, when brokers were formed, they were the sales wings of carriers, right? They were the whole premise of the broker originally, right? Was that they're going to go out and be the salespeople for these capacity owners. And a lot of that stuff was put in place to make sure that there was a paper trail of that money flowing through um, 
so in a very roundabout way, it was kind of designed to protect the broker, if you will, kind of in the very early stages to make sure that they were getting the appropriate percentage. And, you know, I've heard a bunch of different variations. I don't think anyone that I've worked with was around at the time. I mean, those deals were. The, the I've never heard that before. That's interesting. I mean, that, that is, I know that for a fact, that was kind of the original premise behind brokers, right? Was that they, and you still hear that parroted back in some of the kind of old school circles, especially, um, you know, the, the, the deeper you get into the industry. Um, but, but look, I, I think TIA and OIDA, um, they both have valid viewpoints on it. And that's like a super political thing to say, but I think it's the truth. Um, and it's really kind of not my position to get in the middle of it. Fair enough. Sorry. That's kind of like a wet blanket answer, but no. <laughs> I think, uh, no, I, I just, I was curious. Um, your answer is valid or is good though. You know, regardless it's you don't think it'll change behavior so and i agree with you um, and the other thing too right cool. do brokers have the capacity i mean if you're that was put in place when there weren't brokers moving 10 20 billion not that anyone's moving 20 but 10 billion dollars worth of freight i mean what does the infrastructure cost to, you know to be able to provide some of that stuff i think it's a very real concern that some you know some of these firms have voiced that uh, the money to do that's going to come from somewhere you know what i mean it's going to be increased cost what do you guys think about it uh, I mean, I per- and we've talked about it. I I lean more towards the the side of capitalism, where it, I don't think that brokers should have to disclose their customer pricing to carriers. That's my either. personal thought on it. Um, and I think of times when brokers will take a loss to keep a carrier happy or to keep a customer happy, and you know. Obviously, that's the exception, not the rule, but should, you know, I just think about the, the things that ethical brokers do, and there shouldn't be any question as to what what they have for margin. And, you know, it's it's a private business. And so, I think they don't have any. I'm with Nate, too. It's like, I don't even think they're correlated in some instances. And it's like, hey, if I if it's a super tight lane, my shipper has something that needs to go out for a lot of reasons they don't want to disclose, but it has to go for whatever that reason is. And I'm having that conversation with them like, hey, look, this needs to go. And I'm and they're willing to pay way more for me to work on this for six, seven hours sometimes in a really oddball lane. And I've got five people working on it. That cost, I don't feel like has anything to do with the carrier that picks it up, nor do they need to have visibility into it. And I think the other side of it is, I've had these real conversations with contracts that I secured underneath bigger shipping guides where I don't know the carrier's costs and I would get into heated arguments about why they wanted some certain numbers and then you'd get down to it. And it was because they couldn't manage their cash flow. And you're like, well, I can't pay you above market because you don't have a handle on what you're doing operationally. I don't manage your business. You don't manage mine. You charge what you need. I charge what I do. And if, hey, if that works out at the end of the day, the shipper pays it. If not, free market allows them to use somebody else. And I think that's what allows the friction, like we talked about earlier, to be absent right now. It allows more fluidity, allows more transactions to happen. A lot of shippers write into their contracts too. You can't disclose the rate that they're paying. Oh, yeah. They want um, to protect their pricing. So I think um, kind of, I, I believe strongly, not just kind of for where I work now or where I came from, the brokers provide a very valuable service to the market and very specifically to carriers. I, I think carriers are much better off with brokers in the market than they would be otherwise. Um, but I think also it's kind of a fallacy to think that there aren't some individual, you know, in anything, right? You know, 
there are bad people that work at the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. Um, So not to pick on them, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it, it brokers enable a lot of these markets and enable a lot of these smaller carriers to play with shippers that they never could have gotten, you know, past the, past the, the dock guard before. Right. So, um, I don't know if you guys have talked to them much, but it, you know, there's, there's, there's new leadership at the TIA. Um, and I know OIDA has a very fervent stance on this. That'd be something I would definitely be interested in hearing kind of those, those folks go and, and have a healthy debate about the topic. Yeah. There's, there's often a bigger picture that, you know, people like me and Ben don't see. So, <laughs> and I think that's good. We should, we should uh, write that one down. We should try to get someone on from there. So it's interesting. It I've just been wildly impressed here. with the, the new TIA and leadership. I think what kind of shed light on it is people, people felt the crunch this year. They felt the pressure and the stress of 2020 and you, everyone wants to point a finger. So, you know, for the carriers, the brokers are the bad, bad ones. And, for a lot of brokers, it's the, the carriers are just, you know, they're needy. And it's like, I, I brought this up last week when I said before, at the end, beginning of the year, I said, uh, someone asked me if you could change anything, what would it be in trucking this year? I said, uh, change the the feud between, you know, erase the feud between carriers and brokers. And we all need each other. We all just got to love each other. So, but hey, yeah, what's I, realistic? <laughs> yeah, again, I think some of that feud is kind of manufactured, just like the new, like the ratings, you know, to the extent there are ratings. I think some of that um, is manufactured for clicks, right? Yeah. You took an actuarial average broker and an average carrier. They both, there's no kind of, there's no inherent animosity between those two folks. Right. At least I don't, I don't see it. There shouldn't be. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's the, like you said, it's the, the way it's um, portrayed, like simple Facebook groups that are full of brokers and carriers or just brokers. It's just, it's ridiculous. Some of the, the stuff that goes out there. So, but and anyway, some of the industry organizations didn't do themselves any favors in May. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I mean, there, there was some, you can say the right thing the wrong way. Um, and I think some of that happened on, on both sides of the argument. Um, so kind right, of leaving it at that. The right message, the right message at the wrong time, all of a sudden becomes the wrong message, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Compared. And is that your proverb today? Yeah. I'll hang my hat on that one. <laughs> that's a good one. All right. So that that's going to be a wrap on the episode. We can, we, we, I feel like we can, we could have spent hours and hours. You're a, you're a very intelligent guy and you know, this stuff good. So we appreciate having you on um, looking, looking forward to doing some more work with you in the future and having some more good conversations. So uh, thanks again for being on. We'll um, I guess we'll, we'll throw away in the show notes. We'll make sure we've got some stuff, some good articles and links that you think are relevant for you know, what we talked about today, people can see some of your stuff. Um, DAT's own Ken Adamo. Leading Thanks the way. for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Happy awesome. holidays. Happy holidays, for sure. Ben, final thoughts? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. Go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.